Thank you. Y'all give Shauna and Levi and Lauren and Henry another hand here for leading us in worship tonight. Great job. If you would, please join me with a word of prayer tonight as we begin. Lord, we thank you for this evening. Um, We thank you for um, what we're almost at, which is a conclusion of another year. Uh, A crazy year, but nonetheless a year of your faithfulness has been made clear to us, that your grace has been poured out on us, that your mercy has been abundant in our lives every day. So we stand here grateful, uh, nearing the end of 2020, that you have walked with us, that you have been with us, as your word has said, have never forsaken us. And so we ask you to be honored and glorified here tonight as we hear from you, as we open your word, as we stand in desperate need of Uh, your truth and of your guidance and of your spirit being with us tonight, Father. So we just ask that you you make yourself known uh, here tonight, Lord, that we may learn, that our hearts may receive what it is that you would have for us to hear and to apply it to our lives, Father. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, I hope you got a handout on the table out there. There were a few of those and Grateful for the few of you that made it out uh, this, this evening, and those of you who may be watching on YouTube or Facebook, glad that, that you are there as well. Uh, pastor Mike is out on vacation, so he's asked me to fill in. I'm Pastor Ryan, for those who may not know me. I think all of you should know me. Um, I hope you're preparing for a, a new year. I don't know if anybody um, actually stays up and watches like the ball drop anymore, or if you just, you know conk out a few hours before that happens and watch the back of your eyelids, but I know however you celebrate New Year's um, with three kids in my life, I I don't make it to midnight at all um, anymore, so um, not without a nap anyway, and so I just pray that you'll have a good, healthy, and happy New Year and and look forward into next year. Uh, If you would, open to Psalm 130 with me, Psalm 130. You'll notice that the song we just sang, I Will Wait For You, is almost verbatim, this psalm. And Steve has read this song to you as we've sung that song several times on Sunday mornings. And so the Lord just laid this psalm on my heart. Um, I thought it was fitting, a fitting way to kind of the last time we will gather as First Baptist Church in 2020 to uh, reflect on Psalm 130 tonight and what it would have to teach us. So go ahead and open your Bibles to that, Psalm 130. Uh, it's uh, eight short verses that we're going to look at tonight. And, um, you know, all of us at some point... In our lives, I mean, we've all waited for something. You may be in a, in a point of waiting right now. You know, we've been at a restaurant um, and have gotten impatient waiting on our food, or we've uh, waiting in line at a checkout counter or at a voting precinct um, here recently. And some of you who plant or grow things, um, I can't do that very well, but those of you who may grow things, farm, uh, grow vegetables, flowers, um, every year you go into a cycle of planting and tending watering and waiting on a crop to appear. So we've also waited on more important things in life like job promotions, uh, a spouse, a child. Uh, Some of these periods of waiting in our life um, are very difficult. They're long, they're burdensome, uh, they're hard to endure. We get impatient. Uh, We often grow very weary while we wait. And we kind of, we sometimes start asking the hard questions Lord, why am I having to go through this? Why aren't my prayers being answered? Will this problem or this trial that I'm going through, will it ever be resolved? And we we ask these questions. And for many of us, 
It may seem like 2020, like the whole year has felt like this long period of waiting. I think that too many of you have prayed for patience and the Lord gave you 2020 in response to that prayer. Um, But when you think about it, the whole Christian experience, everything that we do from the time that we trust the Lord and walk, begin our walk with Him. Everything about the Christian experience is a period of waiting. It's about waiting. We pray and we wait for God to respond. We plant and we wait for God to give an increase. We labor and we expect and we, we wait and we expect God to give us a harvest for our, our labor. You know, we are a people as Christians, as believers, we are a people who are awaiting Final redemption, the return of Christ, and new heavens and a new earth. We're waiting. We're always in this period of awaiting something as believers. It's in our DNA. And some of us are just not very good at it, uh, truth be told. We're not very good at waiting. And believe you me, before I preach this sermon to you tonight, I preached it to myself several times uh, over and over again. So I almost feel like this is more for me than it is for you. But I certainly hope that you get something out of this tonight. Psalm 130 is a psalm that describes crying out to the Lord. And we're going to look at some of the desperation in this psalm, some of the vivid language in this psalm. It's, it's one, Psalm 30 is one of seven psalms, seven of them, that have come to be called penitential psalms because um, they focus on, a, there's a theme of, of repentance in them. It's also one of the psalms of ascent that uh, pilgrims, as they were on their way to Jerusalem for a major festival, this is one of the psalms that they would recite along their journey. It's one of the psalms of ascent. So uh, let us read this together. You can remain seated while we read it. And then I'm going to make some observations from these eight verses for you tonight. So Psalm 130, I'm going to read the whole thing, starting in verse 1. The psalmist says, Out of the depths I call to you, Yahweh, Lord, listen to my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for help. Lord, if you considered sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered. I wait for you, Yahweh. I wait and I put my hope in his word. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For there is faithful love with the Lord. And with him is redemption in abundance. And he will redeem Israel from all of its sins. So there's four points, as you'll notice on your handout. There's four brief points that I want to make tonight from these verses. And there's blanks there. That's to keep you awake um, as we journey through this together. There's blanks, so you'll have to listen. There's no PowerPoint to kind of tell you what the word is to put in the blank. So you just have to listen. And I'll try to repeat it as we go. But point number one in this, you'll notice that the one who waits continually cries out to the Lord for mercy. So mercy is your first blank. The one who waits continually cries out to the Lord for mercy. If you look at verses one and two with me again, but before we get into verses one and two, let me just address, I had mentioned already that this is a penitential psalm, a penitent psalm. Uh, It's one of seven in the book of Psalms. Not all of them express sorrow over a personal sin. And nor does sometimes when we are penitent in our own prayers, not, it's not always over something that we have personally done, although all of us have 
pretty much every day done something that we need to go to the Lord in confession and repentance for. But not all of the penitent psalms have to do with personal sin. Some of them are just sorrow over um, sin in general. Um, they express sorrow over just the nature of sin and the life of, of people and then in the life of Israel, particularly here. Um, but they, they recognize that man's, all of the penitent psalms, even though they're not personal in nature, they recognize that man's biggest problem and his most troubling issue between us and God is sin. It's sin. Sin is the source of all corruption and trouble. Even if you're in the middle of something that your personal sin did not cause, sin in a general sense, the disease of sin in this world causes all of our troubles, all of our trials. It's what results from all of it. Sin is the source of all corruption and all trouble in this world. And all of the Psalms, all seven of the penitent Psalms, recognize the radical nature of sin, how pervasive it is in the world, how pervasive it is in the human heart. In these Psalms, you almost get a tangible sense of how sorrowful the burden of sin is to the psalm, to the psalmist, to the one who wrote the psalm. And you can sense the burden of sin almost weighs on them. It's like a weight on their shoulder, a physical weight, the way that they talk about it and the vivid language they use to describe it. So in the Psalms, true repentance, it confesses sin for what it really is. It's treason, it's rebellion against God and his nature and the holiness of God. Often you can see the psalmist, not only, um, not only does he lament the sin, but they describe actions to turn away from it. Um, and these penitent psalms always usually close with a sense of joy at the redemption of the Lord, joy at being forgiven, hope in the mercy of God, recognizing how merciful and abounding in mercy that he is and how good that he is. Even a penitent psalm that can be heavy by its very nature usually has a word of hope, a word of promise, a word of encouragement for us. And all of those elements you're going to find in today's psalm in 130. So as you look again, so verses 1 and 2, um, here you get very vivid language of a sinner crying out to the Lord. And the first thing that you notice in this passage is this phrase, out of the depths. Out of the depths. And I'm, I don't, your translations may have some variation of that, but the, the, the sense is, is that the place that the psalmist is calling out to the Lord from is a place of deep misery, deep contrition over sin, deep repentance. And I want to point out that this could be a reference to personal sin in the life of the psalmist, or it could just be a lament over sin in general that they're seeing going on around them. In truth, I believe that we all have times where we are lamenting our own sin, but we also lament the effect of sin that we see around us every day. And you get that sense, both of those sense, from this psalm. The writer of this psalm is deeply moved in their spirit over sin and the corruption of sin. The Hebrew word that is here for depth, for the word depths, it's only used five times in the Old Testament. Its root word, uh, the root word of it means to be um, profound, to be deep. So the depths is a place of profound trouble, profound distress, deep affliction. It's the place that the psalmist cries out to the Lord from. And here there's two truths about this phrase that I think that we should get from this passage, two truths about sin that we can learn about this phrase, out of the depths. <clears throat> sin, no matter how big or small, here's the first one, sin, no matter how big or small, 
by its nature leads the believer to the depths. There's no sin too small or no sin too large that doesn't lead us or should not lead us to a place of the depths of deep mourning, deep contrition over sin. So when we find ourselves in this place, in this place of being in the depths, sin in some way has put us there. Sometimes personal sin, sometimes not. Sometimes it's something that's been done to you or just by very nature of living in a sinful world and being burdened by seeing sin all around you. Nonetheless, sin's the cause of being in the depths. For a believer, it's again, it's sin is not something that we can overlook. It's not something that we can ignore. It's whether it's personal or just the nature of sin itself. It has a way of affecting our souls in a very profound way. Sin should be troubling to us. And the depths, it might look different for all of us. We've all been there, right? All of us have asked you to raise your hand of who's been in the depths. We've all been there. You know what I'm talking about. It might be a... Um, a place of um, sorrow, pity, depression. It could be a place of anger or resentment, a place of sullenness or quiet. Um, For some of us, the depths might be a place that God brings us to so that we might see sin for what it really is. Um, Sometimes God uses these deep places to bring us to a reality of what's going on in our own lives. The depths isn't a place that any of us want to be But here's the truth. Sometimes it's a place that we need to be. It's not a place we want to be, but sometimes it's a place that we need to be. But there's really good news about being in the depths. No matter how deep the depths that you're in or how profound the sense of sorrow that you may be in the middle of, God can meet you there because there isn't a place too deep that God can't reach in your life. God can meet you there. He can hear your cries no matter how far down you are. And if you notice the psalmist's language as he pleads for God, to hear his voice and to turn his ears towards his cries. The sinner earnestly desires to be heard by God and to be shown favor and to be shown mercy. So it's here that we really see what the psalmist is asking for, right? In the depths, he's asking for mercy. He's asking for mercy, divine mercy, something that only God can give, only God can do. And he recognizes this state of being dead in sin, and he pleads with God for undeserved favor. And to be honest, no matter where we're at in life, whether we're in the depths because of something that we've done or because of something that's been done to you, we still need mercy. We still need mercy. The Bible has a lot to say about the mercies of God, and I could spend a whole series of lessons just talking about the mercies of God. He's merciful in ways that we could never comprehend, but In the book of Lamentations, um, which in and of itself, just by its very name, tells us it's a book, a whole book devoted to a lament. It's one long lament. But in chapter 3 of Lamentations, verses 22 and 23, expresses it really well when it says, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. So there's a characteristic of his mercy. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. So even though being in a season of distress, and we've all been there, is hard, sometimes even excruciating. It's hard to wait. Um, It's hard to be patient in those moments in your life. But the one who waits cries out to the Lord for mercy because he knows that 
he or she knows that God's mercies never run dry. They, don't, they never come to an end. They're new every day. He never runs out of mercy for his people. That's the nature of God. He is, he is mercy. He is merciful by nature, and he has more than enough every day to pour out for his people. He never runs out. And not only that, he finds new ways to lavish his mercy on us on a daily basis. So if you belong to him, here's the good news, he will never cease to grant you mercy every day of your life. All that you need every day of your life. He's faithful with his mercy. We could never ask, we could never ask God for more mercy than he is willing to grant us as his people. We could never ask him for more mercy than he's willing to grant as his people. And that's really good news for those of us who may be in distress, who may be in a period of waiting in our lives right now, waiting for the Lord. You may be in distress, but he hasn't for a moment stopped hearing your pleas. He hasn't stopped granting you mercy. If you have nothing else right now, you have the undeserved favor of God in your life. And that's a very priceless thing to have when you're in a period of waiting a period of being in the depths. So what I get from these two verses, this, these two verses alone, is that we, when, if we find ourselves in these deep places of contrition, of mourning, of waiting, of sorrow, the Lord sees you and he hears you and he has not run out of mercy to give you. So that's, that's good news. So the one who waits, the one who waits, continually cries out to the Lord for mercy. No matter what your condition, it doesn't matter if you're in a place of sorrow or not, you still need mercy. You can be at the top of the mountain, you still need mercy. No matter where you're at in your walk, no matter what the day holds, you still need mercy. So that's the first thing. The second thing, the one who waits rests in the forgiveness of the Lord. So the word forgiveness would be in the blank there. The one who waits rests in the forgiveness of the Lord. Verses 3 and 4. So in these verses, the psalmist poses a very good question at the beginning of verse 3. Lord, if you considered sins, who could stand? It's a good question, right? If you considered our sins individually, collectively, however you want to look at that, if you considered our sins, Lord, who could stand? Some, some translations state considered sins as marked iniquities. Lord, if you marked our iniquities, who could stand? And the Hebrew word for mark or for consider here. It means to keep guard over like a watchman um, or to give heed and observe diligently. So like many of the other psalms, we have a, there's a word picture here that the psalmist is giving us. There's a picture of a watchman at night, which we don't use this language much because we don't really have these. We have cops that patrol the streets at night and people who are on guard or neighborhood watches maybe where you're at. But the idea of a watchman was very important in the times of ancient Israel. A person keeping vigil, sometimes a lot of times more than one person at night, keeping guard over the citadel or a castle or headquarters, whatever it may be. But their job, their primary job is to observe and to see everything. Nothing is to escape their gaze because if they miss something, it could mean chaos or endangerment or death of the king or of a number of people. So a watchman takes note of every move, every sound, every smell, their senses are fully alert. To fail at the job of being a watchman could lead to you losing your life in punishment for that. So here's the question again. If the Lord 
took that kind of an observance of our sin, which he does know everything that we do, right? But if he took that kind of an observance of our sin, none of us could stand. And it's not that God doesn't have the ability to do that. He knows what we think before we've thought it. He knows what we say before we say it. He knows what we're going to do before we do it. He has the ability to mark anything and everything about us. He knows and sees all. It's just that in his mercy, he chooses to overlook that for his people. None of us can stand under the scrutiny or the gaze of the Lord. None of us could. One commentary puts it this way. The commentator says, The purest man on earth ought to acknowledge his entire sinfulness and dependence on the mercy of God. God, grateful for us, is not a vengeful watchman just waiting on us to mess up so that he can take note of it and smite us. Right? The psalmist declares that with the Lord there is forgiveness. In his mercy, God grants forgiveness. He gives us forgiveness because he's merciful. God's mercy and God's ability to forgive are one and the same. They work together. We can rest in his forgiveness. But how can God be, and here's the question that we have to wrestle with as believers, how can God be just and overlook the sins of his people? How can God be just and overlook the sins of his people? Romans 3, 24 to 26, explain it this way. You can mark that in your Bible if you want to, but I'm just going to quote it here real quick. <clears throat> Romans 3, 24 to 26 explains they are justified freely by his grace through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him, which is Christ, as the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint, God passed over the sins previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he would be just and justify the one who has faith in Jesus. So God can grant full forgiveness to those full of iniquity if they call on the name of Jesus because Jesus has taken on the punishment for our sins. So in these verses, the psalmist is basking really in the glow of the forgiveness of God. They're grateful for it. As, we, as, he, as the psalmist waits on the Lord to answer him, he rests in knowing that even if his circumstances are dire, if he has nothing else, he has the mercy of God and he is forgiven by God. So likewise for us, so how does this apply to us? You are, as his child, have been pardoned from the penalty of your sin. So it doesn't mean that you won't face consequences for your sin. Being pardoned by God does not mean that you don't face consequences for your sins on this earth. But what it does mean is that the wrath of God that you deserve because of your sins has been removed and placed on Christ. So God's forgiveness is so lavish, so extravagant, and so abundant that it leads to his name being revered. So the extent of God's forgiveness is so great that it ought to lead us to worship him and to serve him in loving reverence. So if you're in a deep place, if you're in the depths, as the psalm describes, and you're waiting on the Lord to act, here's one thing that we can know. God has heard our cries for mercy, and he has answered them with forgiveness of sins. When you call out to God for mercy... He answers with forgiveness. The thing that we need most has already been granted to us in Christ Jesus. So the problem that we want um, is our main problem 
is out of the way. A lot of times we see the circumstance that's in front of us as our main problem. Could be uh, trouble with a family member or a loved one. It could be uh, sin in your life. It could be debt. It could be financial issues, relational issues. We often look at that thing as the main problem when in reality our main problem has already been dealt with in Christ because our main problem is our sin. Our greatest need as people is to be forgiven of God, is for his mercy to be poured out on us so that we might be forgiven. Being made right with God through full forgiveness of sin is our greatest need. So our depth, when we're in it, it could be, it's very dark, it could be very unyielding, but we can rest in the knowledge that God has fully pardoned all of those who've called on the name of Jesus. So whatever you're going through, you don't go through it alone. God's there. He's pouring out mercy every day. He's offering forgiveness every day. His mercy and his forgiveness sustains us while we wait. But that's not all that he gives us either. So let's look at the next set of verses. The third thing, the one who waits puts their hope in God's word. Puts their hope in God's word. You could say puts their hope in the promises of God's word. So here we finally get to the psalmist declaration that he will wait. Out of the depths, I call to you, God. Listen to me. Let your ears hear my cry for help, my pleas for mercy. If you considered my sins, who could stand but with you there is forgiveness so that you may be revered, honored, worshipped. I wait for Yahweh. I wait and I put my hope in his word. So this psalmist has pled for mercy. He's trusted in the forgiveness of God and now he waits. Here's the hard part, right? This is the, this is the hard part. Now he waits. We plead with God. We petition God for things, right? We ask him for things. Very difficult things sometimes in our life. Um, and we don't get the answer immediately, right? God, in, our, in his mercy and in his forgiveness, we wait. He waits. So let's address what it means to wait in the sense that the psalmist is talking about here. So what does it mean to wait? What do we do, right? When we think of waiting, we often think of like, you know, standing in a line. It's mindless. It's boring, there's just, if you're like me, it's festering impatience. You just, you're just fed up with waiting, right? You don't like to do it. There's no point in it. Why am I doing this? I feel that way every time my wife sends me to Walmart. Why am I here? Why am I doing this? Why am I standing in this line? We view waiting as a waste of time, and we often get irritated with it, right? It's an irritation. Waiting is an irritation. <clears throat> but that is not the case with the type of waiting that the psalmist is referring to here. Uh, this is a patient and expectant waiting, right? It's a waiting, expecting God to do something above and beyond what we've even asked for. Sometimes God's answer is more than what you need, more than what you've asked for. It's a waiting that trusts in the timing and the provision, and more importantly than anything, the character of God, right? The character of God. That's why God's word is so important. And why the psalmist says that while he waits, he hasn't, he's not doing nothing, right? He's doing something while he waits 
He finds hope in the pages of Scripture, in the pages of God's Word. Because in those pages of God's Word is revealed the character of God, and it's revealed the plans of God. And if you know the character of God, and you know His plans that He's revealed to us for His people, you know that it's worth the wait, right? You know that it's worth the wait, and that God is doing something good for His people. It tells us, God's Word tells us, about who he is. It tells us about his unfolding plan of salvation for his people. God's word, what God's word does when we read it, it invites us to trust in the character of God. So think about that. As you read it, it's not just head knowledge that you're gaining, right? God's word invites us to trust in the character of the God who's being revealed to us in the pages of scripture. To trust in his salvation that he provides through Jesus Christ. It reveals his promises to us as his people. So the psalmist says, place your hope in the scriptures. To do that, to place your hope in the Bible, is to cling to the promises of the word. This is a book, right? It's pages, it's ink. What we're clinging to are the promises that we find here. And we're clinging to the character of God that we discover through the help of the Holy Spirit in these pages. So while we endure the depths... While we wait here, through the word, we come to know the character of God and we expectantly wait for his promises to be, to us to be fulfilled. So think about it. In great distress, when you're in that place of being in the depths, under the suffering caused by sin, we find that the only hope for man is the Lord Jesus Christ. Our only hope, that's what the Bible reveals for us, right? The word hinges on the person and the work of Jesus. He's what the Old Testament is talking about, what the New Testament is telling us about, and what everything else that came after the Gospels is pointing us back towards. So all of this is pointing to one man, his work on the cross, the Lord Jesus. So we believe that in the pages of Scripture, we're going to find truth and we're going to find hope that we need in order to endure. I love how another commentary that I was reading as I was preparing for this um, was talking about this verse. And he said, waiting for the Lord is patiently bearing our affliction, whatever it may be, and confidently looking forward to deliverance from it in God's good time. Patiently enduring affliction, whatever it may be, and confidently looking forward to deliverance from it in God's good time. So think about that. It's not about will God deliver me. It's about how and when will God deliver me from whatever this situation is. God always delivers his people in some form or fashion. There's always deliverance for his people. It's about how and about when and about what does he want you to learn while you're there. So while we wait, we look to the pages of God's word for hope. And what we really long for while we're doing that is to meet God there. In the midst of all the waiting, we desperately need to feel the presence of God himself. So when we go to the pages of Scripture, we don't go there alone. We don't go there by ourselves. We go there with the Lord. God meets us there. That was the promise of Jesus before he left this earth, right? That he would always be with them, even until the end of the age. So we know today that he keeps that promise by sending us the gift of his Spirit. And then if you'll notice in this, the verse 6, the psalmist comes back to this imagery of the watchman. 
He comes back to this imagery of the watchman. Uh, the watchman does all his work when? All his work is done in the dark, at night. All right? His focus must be most keen in the darkness. <clears throat> he can't rest until the first rays of the sun appear on the horizon. Right? That's, that's when he finally can, his, his labor ends when the sun comes up. Only then can he take a break from his watch and let down his guard. What the watchman longs for more than anything is the dawn, right? The rising of the sun. What the watchman, while he waits, he knows that morning will come. That's never in doubt, right? The watchman knows that morning will come. Unless the Lord just stops time and freezes it, which we know he can do that too. He did it once or twice in the Bible. But unless God does that, he knows that morning will happen. The sun's going to rise just as it went down. It's going to come back up. He's going to find relief from his burdensome task. But the relief has to wait, right? It has to wait until morning. And that's the way it is with us as God's people. We're confident in the power of our Lord to act, right? We shouldn't doubt his power to deliver us. We shouldn't doubt his ability to bring us out of the depths we're confident that he's going to act according to what is best for us as his people. We know that morning's coming. <clears throat> the promise of his word tells us that God will rescue his people. We sometimes just have to wait on his timing. It's a hard thing to do. In the midst of distress, we know that ultimately that distress can't last forever, right? At some point it will end. <clears throat> we know it's going to end one way or the other. The hard part is the wait. We don't but we don't have to wait without hope. That's what this psalm tells us. We don't wait without hope. So to sum it up, what do we wait for? What are we waiting for? We wait for His grace and His presence. We wait for His deliverance from distress. We wait for an answer to prayer. We're waiting on the performance of His promises. We wait expectantly for forgiveness. And ultimately, what we await and what we long for more than anything is redemption, right? We want to be made new. We want this world as we see it to be transformed. We want to see Jesus descend. And that's what these last couple of verses talk about. In these last two verses, verses 7 and 8, the one who waits, trust in the redemption of the Lord. Trust in the redemption of the Lord. So the word redemption would be your fill in there. <clears throat> These last two verses, uh, the psalmist calls for all the nation of Israel to put their hope in God. Then in verses 7 and 8, he gives them three reasons to do that. Three reasons to put their hope in the Lord. One, because of his faithful love, right? For there is faithful love with the Lord. Some of your translations may say unfailing love, loving kindness, but the Hebrew word, a Hebrew term for faithful love is this, this Hebrew word hesed. It's a word that refers to God's steadfast, faithful, covenant love for his people. God's love is rooted in his promises. God's love is rooted in his promises. The basis of our hope, like Israel's, is the unfailing, merciful, faithful love of God. Isn't it somewhere in, in First or Second Timothy where... It says, even when we are not faithful, God still is. God is faithful. 
It's a special word in the Bible, the word hesed, the, way, the word that we translate faithful love or loving kindness. It's used a total of 248 times. If there's anything that the Old Testament is trying to teach us about God, it's that he's faithful and that he's compassionate. Most of the uses of this word are found in the book of Psalms, 50% of them as a matter of fact. It was something that people were not only called upon to remember frequently, but something they were to praise God often for. Israel's hope is also our hope, right? We can place our hope in him because of his faithfulness to us. God has set his affection on his people. In 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 1, verse 20, Paul was reminding the Corinthians that all of the Old Testament promises that God gave his people were fulfilled in Christ. So because we are now in Christ, those promises are ours to claim as well. Christ is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises. So we as New Testament believers being in Christ, found in Christ, which that's another topic for another day. What does it mean to be in Christ? For our purposes, we just need to know it means to be covered by his blood, to be under the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ, to be adopted into the family of God. Because we are in Christ, all of those Old Testament promises that Christ fulfilled are for us too. Paul says that all of his promises in Christ are yes and amen. So God has a special covenant love for his people. He cannot and he will not. It's not in his nature to break his promises. God, it, here's something that we, I have to remind myself often, and you should too. God is more for you than you will ever be for yourself. So just think about that for a minute. God is more for you than you will ever be for yourself. So all those who hope in him will find that his love and his mercy are faithful. He is faithful. As the great hymn, Great is Thy Faithfulness, says, Great is Thy Faithfulness, O God, my Father, there is no shadow of turning with Thee. He's unchanging. He doesn't change. Thou changest not, Thy compassions, they fail not. As Thou hast been, as You have been, You forever will be. Great is Your faithfulness. And later on down in that hymn, there's another stanza that says, Pardon for sin and a peace that endures Thine own dear presence to cheer into God's strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. And if you're in the depths, isn't that what you need? Strength for today, bright hope for tomorrow, blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. God is faithful. So we wait, we trust in the redemption of the Lord. We can trust in his redemption because he is a faithful God. The second thing that the psalmist reminds them of why they can hope in the Lord and trust in his redemption is because of his abundant redemption. And with him is redemption in abundance. Some of your, if you have an older translation, the King James or something equivalent to that, it may say plenteous redemption. <clears throat> so let's briefly examine both of those words, plenteous or abundant and the word redemption. The word that we translate as plenteous or abundant is a word that means to become numerous or to multiply or to increase greatly. Uh, it connotes the idea of something that's excessive, something exceedingly great, like something beyond imagining. And the Hebrew word for redemption just simply means ransom. We all know what a ransom is. It means to deliver or to liberate. So when you pair that word with the word for abundant, 
you get the idea of a redemption or a ransom, a liberation that's so excessive and so exceedingly great that it can't but inspire us to hope in a God who would grant us something so wonderful, something so lavish. He hasn't just liberated us, right? He has ransomed us in such an excessive fashion that we will never again have to fear bondage. So think about that. Somebody who's been set free from some type of physical bondage still has to live under the fear that they could be put back into bondage one day. A person who's been kidnapped but set free might be kidnapped at some other point in their life, right? But with God, that's not how his ransom works. We don't have to worry about sin catching back up with us and putting us back into bondage because when God redeems, it's complete and utter liberation. God redeems in abundance. It's, it's a redemption that never needs to happen again. When he sets you free, you're free. There is no greater redemption than the redemption that God offers. There's no greater ransom than his. What better price can be paid than the blood of Jesus for your sins? Is there anything that could ever come and take that away or take that back? He's left nothing unpaid. Everything's been paid in full for his people. He has redemption in abundance. So that should increase our hope in him. But here we, here we come back to the waiting again, right? We know we've been redeemed, right? Salvation, that's what salvation is. We've been saved, purchased, ransomed, redeemed by the blood of Jesus, but we're still waiting on redemption, final redemption. So what, this, this whole life that we live as Christians is a life of waiting Final redemption. We rest in the knowledge that our debt's been paid, but we know that things still aren't as they should be or will one day be. We're kind of like watchmen who were mentioned earlier. We know the morning is coming, but we're still waiting to see the first rays of the sun. Right? God has redeemed us, but we await redemption in full. None of us can look at ourselves and say we are as we should be or as God will make us one day, right? We're in a constant state of decay and decline and falling apart. That's just the nature of this life. But we can still rest in redemption and trust and hope in the redemption of God, knowing that he's got greater things in store for his people. So the third reason that the psalmist says that we can hope in God's redemption is because he has removed our sins. So verse 8 is very Christological. You think about this, and he himself, will redeem Israel. So who's redeeming Israel? Is Israel somehow liberating themselves? Is Israel sending a king, a man, to liberate Israel, to save them from oppression? No, God's not sending a man. He's not sending a group of people. God himself is the redemption of Israel. God himself has paid the price, is what the song that we sing um, earlier says, God himself has paid the price. And think about this. This was referring to Jesus, right? And he himself will redeem Israel. Who is the redemption of Israel? It's Jesus. King Jesus, Savior Jesus, Messiah Jesus is the redemption of Israel. So this psalm written hundreds of years before Christ, but it points to the work of the cross, right? It points to where redemption happened where it took place. So this verse makes a very important point for us that we shouldn't miss. <clears throat> in order for sin to be completely dealt with, 
Right? Israel could deal with sin. God gave them a means of dealing with sin, but they couldn't deal with it completely. In order for sin to be completely dealt with, God himself was going to have to do it. God himself would have to offer himself in order to atone for the sin of his people. And he did that by what we just celebrated at Christmas. God and the Son became flesh and lived a life of perfection before his Father, completely obedient to the Father, submitting to the will of the Father, humbling himself even to the point of death on a cross to atone for our sin. God himself has to atone for the sins of people in order for redemption to be full. So that's what was accomplished on the cross. In Christ, God was punishing all of our sins. God the Son, by His own blood, paid the ransom that we owed. God Himself paid the price. And again, that's why that last verse of the hymn that we sang before I was preaching is so precious. It reminds us that God has taken the penalty of our sin on Himself. We can be redeemed and our sin removed because of what He's done now he has come to make a way and God himself has paid the price that all who trust in him today find healing in his sacrifice. So at the end of the day, how do you get out of the depths? It's a deliverance that only God can bring to us and it's through the blood of Jesus Christ. So it's fitting that this psalm began with a plea from a place of misery it began with a plea for mercy, and it ends with a promise of full redemption in Jesus Christ. It begins with a person in the depths of sorrow, and it concludes with a person who's hopefully waiting final redemption. So that's a reminder to us, as some of you are in a season of waiting right now, and in a sense we all are, but we can be reminded that God has heard your plea for mercy, and his answer was the cross. In him and him alone, there's mercy, there's forgiveness, there's hope, there's redemption in abundance. Waiting's hard. Waiting is tough. I've done my fair share of it this year. We often lose focus. We get impatient. We start to doubt. And some of us begin to wonder, like the psalmist, if our prayers are being heard. I know we don't like to say that out loud, that we... Sometimes don't think our God hears our prayers, but all of us have thought it at some point. This psalm is a great reminder that we are heard. God sees us even in the depth, right? As we wait, uh, we can find comfort in Him and hope in the fact that God has done, is doing, and will do everything needed to accomplish the ultimate and the complete redemption of His people. It's hard to fathom when you're in the middle of um, a hard time, in the middle of tribulation, in the middle of suffering, or in the middle of, of affliction. It's hard to remember and remind ourselves that it does have a purpose. We know that affliction has a purpose because if it didn't, then everything Jesus went through was for naught, right? We know his affliction had a purpose. And if the greatest affliction that man has ever endured, which was Jesus on the cross... If that has a purpose, then everything that we go through also has a purpose. It's according to his sovereign hand. You don't go through anything that God doesn't see and hasn't seen before it even happened to you. So what are we called to do? We're called to be faithful watchmen awaiting the redemption of the Lord.
So I'm gonna close by restating verse five. I wait for the Lord. I wait and I put my hope in his word. Can you join me with a word of prayer as we close? Father, Lord, we're grateful, Lord, for your salvation. We're grateful for the redemption that only comes in knowing Jesus Christ. We're grateful for, uh, as hard as it is to say, we're grateful for any affliction that you bring, Lord, knowing that you're accomplishing something through that. If nothing else, you're reminding us of who you are. You're showing us who you are more clearly. You're calling us to find our hope in your word and to trust your redemption, to trust the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross and to find our hope in that alone, our trust in that. So we just ask you to guide us as we conclude this year, as we look forward to next year, Lord, and we find ourselves in a place of waiting in a place of depths. Lord, help us look up and know that you're right there, that you see us, you hear us, you know all about it, and you've redeemed us already. As your children, you've redeemed us. So help us patiently wait and learn and trust no matter what our circumstance may be. We honor you, we praise you, we thank you. And if there's one here tonight, Lord, that um, needs to place their hope in you, I pray that they would do that. If there's one here tonight who needs to renew their commitment to their hope and their trust in your word, I pray they would do that. So as we depart, Father, I pray you would go with us, remind us of your presence, remind us that you're there, and remind us that you go with us everywhere we go. We trust you, we praise you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Well, thank you all for being here tonight. I hope you have a blessed rest of the week. Uh, Happy New Year to all of you. Um, And if you don't stay up late enough to ring it in, um, I hope you have a good time. Right up until that point, you fall asleep. So be blessed. Have a good week.